Welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Baladandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. Thank you for being here today. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Uh, so some of you may already know Yona. For those of you who don't, uh, Yona Weiss is uh, he, well, let me just give you the backstory. He was a teacher, <laughs> which is why he's a great educator. I've listened to his presentations multiple times and he, he's really good with teaching. And then he transitioned to real estate investor and broker, and he is now known as the cost segregation king. He is with Madison Specs. He's here today. He is our cost segregation expert. Thank you, um, Yona, for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Yona, I wanted to, I mean, I know we're going to go into cost segregation, but I wanted to start out by asking you um, from your experience right, with your background, why you picked real estate um, and, you know, what you saw as the advantages of investing in real estate. You know, real estate just made so much sense to me. There were, um, you know, for, for a couple of reasons, basically when at a point when I decided to go into the real estate space, there was, you know, I was, I was looking to do something beyond what I was doing in teaching. And, um, I basically gave myself two, well, I, I had two criteria. Okay. One was what is a field I can get into that won't require me to do any more formal education because I had done, you know, as I'm sure you, you know, as a, as a doctor, when you do like, you know, close to a decade of, uh, you know, formal education, it's, you know, at a certain point, you're just like, okay, I don't want any more. I'm smart enough to figure this out. So that's why real estate jumped out at me because it seemed like there were so many opportunities, even without having to, you know, you could self-educate, you could educate on the go. You could uh, learn so much from webinars and from podcasts and these kind of things. It wasn't like you needed to go back to school to do it. Um, the second thing was, you know, I was looking, oh, what, what's a, a great way to, you know, make a, a ton of income, you know, potentially. And so real estate just had kind of no boundaries. There was like, you know, there, I knew a lot of people that had gotten into real estate and were just doing very well and had, you know, built wealth over time. We're doing that. And so I figured, listen, I'm in this for the long haul. Let's, uh, let, let's just do it. So those are kind of two, two things that led me to real estate. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's what a lot of the members in our community also are trying to uh, build something, especially passive right. income, generational wealth, without without having to put too much effort into it. And you can titrate real estate to be any way you want it to be. You can be super active. You can be very passive in it, and, and that's what we love about real estate. But um, why don't we just um, talk about uh, why physician, why real estate investors in general, right, should know about depreciation and bonus depreciation? Why should they know about it? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, with any real estate investment, you you get a great tax benefit that comes along with the real estate, specifically depreciation and cost segregation is, and bonus depreciation, as we'll get into, is really just a form of depreciation of cost segregation. It's a tax deduction that you get from your income. And so unlike almost any other uh, stream of income that you can get those returns and it can be tax-free, at least during the whole period of those, uh, of those investments, which unlike, you know, if you, if you invest in stocks or anything like that, you're paying tax on any gain that's happening year after year, which is not the case, you know, if done right through cost segregation. So that's really a main thing because you, you know, especially with high 
income, you want to find other streams of income that at least can be tax-free. And then real estate is a great one to do it, especially if you're using cost segregation. Um, another reason is that what I've seen a lot of people do is have a spouse become a real estate professional, which is actually allows you to use those depreciation, those extra huge deductions to then offset any ordinary income or W-2 income that your spouse may have. So if, uh, you know, if you and your spouse are both high W-2 income earners and investing in real estate, you're not going to be able to benefit from the full gamut of the conservation, meaning you're still, it's going to help for your investments, but beyond that, it's not going to spill over to your W-2. However, if one goes full-time into real estate, uh, then you can actually not only not pay tax on the real estate investments, but also it can spill over to your W-2 as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's the most important thing. When you have these tax deductions, you're able to save, um, you know, even shelter your clinical income, you take that money, you reinvest it, and it just allows you to accelerate your growth significantly. I know you have um, a slide presentation that we could go over. I know with numbers, people understand everything much better. So if you wouldn't mind, if we could, we could probably just look at that first and then take more questions afterwards. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is my presentation. Um, so we're going to talk about what's called the, I like to call the magical world of cost segregation. The reason why I call it the magical world of cost segregation is because when you, when you learn more about this, it, it really almost seems magical. Uh, literally, it, it's like, it's hard to understand how this is even legal, but it is. And so, um, you know, it, like I said, it's just like magic. So the first thing we want to you know, talk about, just kind of overview, what are the things that we're going to do? And obviously there are so many different things within uh, mobile home parks, with multifamily, with every type of asset class. I think this one was specific. Maybe I gave some mobile home parks. Not sure why it's there. Um, we want to talk about the benefits, talk about really the definition and break down what this is and how this works and how we can benefit from it. Bonus depreciation is obviously a hot topic right now. We're going to talk about how long it's going to be lasting for. It's, it's soon to be going away. When should you be doing it? Who should be doing it? Uh, and this thing I mentioned, the real estate professional just a minute ago, I'll go more into that in detail shortly and then do a little case study. Um, a, a quick overview, right? Anytime you buy a property, you are given a tax deduction. It's called depreciation. And that depreciation essentially, not like it sounds, right? It doesn't don't be confused by the definition of, you know, something's going down in value. No, your building's not going down in value. It's actually probably appreciating. It's probably going up in value. But the IRS gives a tax deduction called depreciation, which is based on the fact uh, or the principle, rather, that things go down in value. And they gave kind of arbitrary numbers for commercial properties over a 39-year period and for residential, including multifamily, over a 27-and-a-half-year period. Now, mind you, this date or this time period of 39, 27 and a half begins the day you buy the property. So it's not intrinsic to the property itself to, oh, the walls, you know, have been, this was built in 1947. It's already been depreciated. No, when you buy it today in 2022, you get to now start that 39-year process of depreciating your property based on the purchase price of what you spent. So again, it's not intrinsic to the real uh, value and it's not intrinsic to the real useful life of the property. Again, this is a, it's a borrowed term depreciation based on the, uh, the principle, like I said, that things go down in value as time goes on. Um, but 39 years or 27 years is a pretty long time. And so we don't want to have to wait to take all of those deductions, especially if you're not planning on holding the property for that long. Um, and if you want to be able to benefit from some of those deductions from your future self, 
uh, which is instead of waiting 39 years, you can actually accelerate some assets within the property, some components that you can take at a five-year, seven, 15-year uh, lifespan, which means you can get those deductions at a faster rate at an earlier time. And that's really what, what the benefit is going to be here. Now, how exactly does this work? Um, so let's just break it down, some numbers here. Let's say you take a purchase price of a million dollars, just a round number. And there's always gonna be a land allocation because land itself does not depreciate. And so we're gonna take that land uh, allocation, let's say 15%, which is a pretty average number. And what's left over is called your depreciable basis. That's gonna be $850,000. Again, it's gonna, may depend on the, the, the location of the property, the type of property, what that real land allocation is gonna be, but 15% is pretty much the national average. So. We'll keep that here. Although, mind you, in California and places where you have much higher land values, it, that is number is going to be much higher. Okay, up to the point where I've seen literally like 60, 70 percent allocated to land, which is which is insane if you ask me. Um, and that depreciable basis, if you were to depreciate it equally, what's called the straight line depreciation method, equally over a 39 year period, you would have a twenty one thousand dollars you know, deduction or 30,000 for residential property. So essentially that's your depreciation deduction. So again, if we go to our income and we say, listen, I have this property and I'm making about 50, $60,000 a year from this million dollar purchase out of a five or six cap and half of it, right? 30,000, 21,000 is already being re reducing that. That depreciation deduction reduces your taxable income. So that 60,000, let's just use a round number, is going to reduce that 30,000. You're only going to pay taxes on the remaining 30,000. That's how dep regular depreciation works. Cost segregation takes it to the next level by adding in over the first five years, as we'll see shortly, bigger deductions, which can literally double or triple the amount you can take. So instead of 30,000, it would be more like 60, 70, $80,000 for the first several years, which gets you to have zero taxable income, uh, reduces your taxable income, and, and oftentimes creates a passive loss, which will actually get you a negative um, income, which again, can be beneficial, as we'll see shortly, if you are a real estate professional, I mean, you're not losing money, but just on paper, it looks like you haven't made any money. Uh, you certainly have. And that extra money that you would have paid to the IRS is actually going to, uh, you know, stay in your pocket. And so that's really the main benefit over here of the cost variation. So breaking down some of the fundamentals, how this actually works, meaning what are the, um, what's the process of getting this done? it requires an engineering component to it. And so even though this is a tax benefit, right? It's very much related to accounting. It's something that most accountants cannot do because it requires, according to the IRS, an engineering component to it. The engineers actually have to look, see the property and break down every individual component and identify things that depreciate at a faster rate. And we'll tell you exactly what some of those things are in a minute. Some things that are considered personal property like furniture or fixtures, things like that, um, those things are, those components are going to be identified by the engineer. Now, traditionally, an engineer would actually have to walk the property and take pictures, videos, measurements. A couple of years ago when COVID, you know, hit, we were really faced and Madison Specs were the largest national company doing this. We do you know, about 3000 of these a year in all 50 states. We were faced with this challenge. We can't travel anywhere. We can't do this. How are we going to continue? And I know many other firms we're faced with the same challenge, we ended up transitioning to a more virtual walkthrough, which allows our engineers to get on, you know, a phone, get on a, a you know, a, a video call recorded that they can walk through with a property manager or, or someone on site 
that can just take around the engineer, show them everything. And we're able to take that video and then break down every component as if they were there and viewing the entire property, zoom in here, et cetera. And I actually did a very nice uh, walkthrough on uh, a video on Bigger Pockets recently. If anyone wants to check that out, the Bigger Pockets YouTube channel uh, a couple of weeks ago. So you can see what it looks like when you're doing a walkthrough of a property. And, and what they're doing is identifying all those things. And I'll show you in a slide, the next slide, what those things are, and then taking those deductions at a faster rate. So what are some of these things, these asset classes or these components that depreciate faster? So the building and the structure is really the only thing that's going to depreciate on a 39 or 27 and a half year schedule. Those are the structural components. If you think about like the walls, the roof, the floor, you know, windows, doors, Anything that is structural, integral to the structure of the building, even infrastructure like plumbing and electro, however, there are many things and components inside that's considered by the IRS, personal or tangible property, anything that's basically non-structural. So even if it is attached, like stuff like millwork or carpeting or equipment, furniture, obviously you see these things, they're actually movable, equipment and furniture, right? But a ceiling fan or appliances or moldings, decorative lighting, shelving, right? Closets, countertops, so many things like that that are actually in the property that are non-structural. We're going to identify what those things are, what the value of those items are, and then take the, that value as deduction over a five-year period. Again, all these things added up is going to create uh, deductions over the first five years. So that's what we talk about uh, over the first five years, really the biggest uh, benefit. And this can often be, and I'll show you some examples later, what the percentages really are, but it can literally be, you know, sometimes 20 or 30% of the total property uh, that is going to be depreciated at a faster rate over here. The second main category we're identifying is what's called land improvements. Now, you remember before I said land does not depreciate? Well, that's true. The land doesn't, but what's on top of the land does. And so anything outside the property, like concrete or paving asphalt, right? If you have a sidewalk, you have a parking lot, you have a driveway, fencing of any kind, landscaping of any kind, um, even pavement markings, playground equipment. There's a lot of things, storm, right? Signage, so many things, anything outside the property, et cetera. We're going to take what's the value of those components, right? What's the value of the asphalt? How many square footage is that? We're going to take that value and then you'll be able to take that as a deduction over a 15 year period. So again, we're accelerating the value of these components to these faster depreciation categories or, or lifespans, which is going to get you a much bigger deduction uh, in the earlier years. Now, I will talk about shortly the bonus depreciation, which actually allows you to front load the entire amount. And that's really where this makes you know, a, a huge, huge difference. Um, so just to recap, for those of you who are joining late a little bit, the average, right, on average, on a million dollars of reclassified assets, we can get about $200,000 of after-tax savings. So if you think about what it means after-tax savings, again, what we're doing by creating these depreciation deductions is lowering your taxable income. You're not going to get a refund check for all that amount, but what you are doing is lowering your taxable income, and based on whatever your tax rate will be, uh, or normally is, that's going to show you what your after-tax um, net benefit is really going to be. So reducing your tax liability, increasing cash flow, and of course, the time value of money really is what this is all about. Because time value of money means a dollar today is worth more than you know five years from now. But besides for inflation, right? What the time value of money really shows you, and especially now we know what inflation can really cause, that you know a dollar today is certainly not worth what a dollar was a year ago. Um, but Besides for that, what you can do with that dollar, what you can do with those extra dollars in your pocket is really what it's all about. And that's really where the real money starts making sense that 
all of the money that you should have paid to the IRS, you keep as cash flow and can literally reinvest that and buy another property and create more income and create more um, value and more uh, money from that. That's really where the benefit of using this is. Uh, and so we'll get into bonus depreciation shortly. And if anyone has any questions, please do not hesitate. Happy to, happy to field any of those at any time. So who should be doing this? When is this something that can be done and who should be doing it? Uh, it can be done by anyone, really, as long as you are a taxable entity. If you are an individual, if you are uh, you know, a corporation, LLC, any type of partnerships, if you are the, the few examples where you cannot do a cost ratio, you cannot take depreciation is if you are not taxable, if you're a nonprofit, for example, or... Um, you're investing from a retirement account that is already a tax shelter, like a 401k, they call it qualified retirement plans, QRPs, or uh, Roth IRAs, where they're already tax sheltered, you're not going to be able to benefit from the depreciation on those either. So those are some examples just to you know watch out for if that, that does come up a lot, especially with uh, nowadays. It's a great thing to do if you can self-direct your... Uh, your retirement account into real estate. Uh, however, just know whether or not this is going to be beneficial from the depreciation standpoint. And, and if you do have a partnership, let's say you buy a property with a partner or, or investors for that matter, usually the depreciation is split up uh, according to the equity or according to the percentage of ownership of each individual. And so if you buy you know, a million dollar property and each one has you know, 50% ownership, if it's all cash, so each one of you will have, you know, put in $500,000, but you'll get equally, you know, all the tax benefits. However, when you have leverage, which we have a loan from the bank as part of the partner, you actually get the benefit. The bank gets no benefit in the, in the depreciation, which is really cool. So you can buy a million dollar property and put down 20% and you still get the benefit of the million dollars of depreciation. And so that's really where in a lot of investments you may have seen, oh, if you're investing $100,000, you're going to get 100% back in, in depreciation. How that happens is when you have a high leverage, like 80%, you know, loan to value and putting $100,000 in and you're getting 20% bonus um, of the actual depreciation up front. Well, that's 100% of the actual equity going into the property. So that's how it makes sense. Uh, that works. Um, so let's talk about this real estate professional. I mentioned this is a great, uh, a great strategy, really a great way for people to, um, you know, especially if you are a high W-2 earner, right? Getting a spouse to be a real estate professional is something that is doable. And I've seen a lot of people do this just for the tax benefits. Because if you just make a calculation and see how much you would be paying in taxes versus um, how much you could save if you literally just became a real estate professional, it's really incredible. So only one spouse needs to do this, but there are basically two requirements. Number one is it needs to be more than half of your, you know, job, your time. And what that means literally is, you know, more than 50% of your time is spent in the real estate business. But what it means practically, according to the IRS is court cases that have come up is that you cannot have a W-2 job. You cannot have another full-time job and also be a real estate professional. Even though it says you only need 750 hours a year, nevertheless, if you have another full-time job, you cannot also claim real estate professional status or reps, as I'm sure you've seen it um, talked about or maybe not, but now you will, and you'll notice it reps. What is that all about? This is the real estate professional status. So anyone who is doing any of the following things, developing, redeveloping, constructing, reconstructing, acquiring, converting, renting, leasing, operating, managing, brokering. This is the wording from the IRS's publication. 
which will define if you are involved in, in any or all of these activities, uh, then you are a real estate professional. Brokering is, the, is an incredible thing because you don't even have to be working on your own properties. Because you are a broker, you get that status. And so this is a great way. Obviously, you need to own properties in order to benefit from it because you need to get the depreciation uh, in order to really get the main benefit, which like I said before, is that you're able to take those losses, those depreciation deductions against your active income, okay? Or your spouse's active income, okay? <clears throat> there is one exception, and this may not apply to any of you, but if your adjusted gross income is less than $150,000, then there is an exception that you can use up to $25,000 of those deductions against your active income as well. Again, this is someone who's passive and someone who has a, you know, a adjusted gross income of under 150, basically under 100,000, you get the full 25,000 and then it phases out up to 150,000. Um, there was a really great tax reform, right? A few years ago, that was called the Tax Cuts and Job Act. What that did was it created this new law called bonus depreciation. And why this is so important is because basically this gave, I believe, gave a huge boost to the economy and to the real estate industry over the past several years. And it allowed something called 100% bonus depreciation, which essentially if you remember from a few slides ago, we talked all about the five-year property, the 15-year property, basically everything that we're identifying that you could take as a tax deduction at a faster rate, you have the option, and it's an option, once you've done a conservation study and identified, allocated what those things are, you now have the option to take that all upfront, 100% of those deductions in the first year. So I mentioned that can be 20, 30% of that maybe being spread over a five or 15-year period. Now you're actually able to take it all up front in the first year. And so this is really incredible, which has given people huge, huge tax deductions. And uh, this year is actually the last year that's gonna be 100%, okay? January 1st, 2023, it's gonna start going down to uh, by 20% each year until it's phased out entirely. So in 2023, any property that is acquired in 2023 uh, and forward, it's gonna be only 80% bonus depreciation. The remaining 20% could still be on that cost segregation five and 15 year schedule. And essentially, you know, after it's all said and done, it's going to go back uh, unless, you know, of course, we get another, uh, another tax reform that changes this, which may very well happen, uh, but we sh that remains to be seen. Uh, the CARES Act was something really cool. I actually put this in here because last year is not applicable anymore, but there was something called a net operating loss carry back that was really beneficial, allowed people to uh, actually go back and amend previous year's tax returns and apply the depreciation this year to previous years. This no longer applies, uh, but it's something you know to note that it may come back at a certain point. So it's a really cool thing if it does. Uh, when, should, when should we do this? Okay, this is really the question I get asked a lot. When is the best time to do the cost segregation study? Really can be done anytime. And the amazing thing is it really is an option. Because it's a tax strategy, it may work for some people all the time. It may only work for some people, you know, other time. If you don't have any income, it may not make sense to do the cost segregation study, right? To get all these deductions, it's not going to help you. Uh, that doesn't really make sense. But most people like to get it done as soon as they buy it in the first year of ownership, right? To get those tax deductions upfront. And many, many, many of my clients and many people reach out to me beforehand, even when they have something under contract before they even bought it to just get 
uh, a free analysis. We do, we run a free estimate for anyone just to show you what the potential tax savings would be. And especially people who are doing syndications, they like to show investors, you know, and things like that, what it's going to look like. So if you've ever seen a webinar where you see like, oh, these are the potential tax deductions, the cost segregation benefits, that's because, you know, they got the analysis done ahead of time. We looked at the exact property and shown what that's going to be. But it can be done at any point. Again, it can actually be done not only on uh, the acquisition, it can be done on the renovation. Any money added into the property is actually going to be depreciated and should be um, allocated as such into those different depreciation categories. But the great thing is you can do this retroactively, what's called a look back study. So even if you bought a property, you know, a year, two, three, five years ago, and we're just depreciating it on the regular straight line uh, scale, you can go back retroactively without amending your tax returns and actually collect or catch up any depreciation that you missed. And so it allows you to, to just change your accounting method and get a big lump sum this year of what you could have taken in the previous years, and then just change your accounting method going forward. So that's, again, it, if it's a tax planning thing that it would make more sense to do, you know, the consideration in the second or third year of ownership, that's what a lot of people do. And they're able to, you know, catch up and get a big lump sum then, especially if you're planning for a big capital event at that point, or you need these extra losses at that point, that's when it's going to be strategically most uh, beneficial. So we talked about the different types of uh, properties, right? The different assets. I mentioned that apartments or multifamily have on average about 20 to 30%. I'd say on average about 28% over here of the reallocation of the assets. Meaning if we're looking at everything, we're saying all of the you know, components added up, the five-year and 15-year, that adds up to about 28% on average in multifamily properties. All types of properties you can do a conservation on, except for your personal residence. Uh, mobile home parks is one that's really off the charts over here. So that's a lot of fun because it's mostly just land improvements, right? You're not going to have much structural anything over there. You're not going to have much personal property. You just have land. And then what's on top of the land, which is the concrete or the you know, pavement, golf courses are the same or RV parks, which is another very hot asset class a lot of people are invest investing in. So if you're looking for something, I need a huge amount. What's the most amount of bonus depreciation you owner that I can get? I would say RV parks, mobile home parks, golf courses. You know, it's a different business, a little bit different than, uh, you know, your typical multifamily um, or, or single family even, but it's definitely something that you can uh, check out and look into it, especially if you need those huge tax deductions. Warehouses, again, is something on the lower end because, again, there's probably not much in there where you have a lot of structure and not a lot of personal property, maybe some shelving, et cetera. A mobile home park owner purchased this uh, 67 lots, mobile home park, right? Park-owned homes, tenant-owned homes. And so without cost segregation, depreciation would have been about, all right, 29, again, $30,000. Like we said, the example at the beginning, million dollars, about $30,000. By doing this, they were able to reallocate right here in this example. Look at this, 80, uh, I mean, a huge amount. We're talking about over 60%, right? 65% of the total uh, depreciation was in these faster five-year and 15-year categories. And so we're able to take a huge amount, like I said, on a million-dollar purchase in the first year, you can get over a half a million dollars of tax deductions. It's a, it's a great thing. So this same thing would apply with multifamily, but more like instead of 500,000, it'd be more like you know, 300,000 or, or something like that. So the example, real numbers, it really does make a big difference. Uh, how, how we're supposed to do this, like I said, this is not something that can be done by your accountant because it does require the engineering component. The IRS, like everything, has all these kind of hoops that you need to jump through. And so this is taken directly from the IRS's Conservation Audit Techniques Guide, which 
um, delineates all these different principles that need to go into a proper cost segregation study. So if you've ever seen a cost segregation study, a proper one, it's, you know, maybe 90, 100 pages long and is very detailed. There's a whole description, there's a whole numbering system, a nomenclature, et cetera. And, uh, you know, identification to the tax code of all those individual components, as well as, you know, basically just creating a new depreciation schedule, but you need to show your work. And so that's really what goes into it. And that's why, you know, having a, a firm who specializes in this is really the only way to do it. It's not something you can do on your own. There are some, uh, I have seen pop up recently, some what we call do-it-yourself, like online um I guess, software options that are very inexpensive, uh, but they also do not stand up an audit. So it, it is, you know, kind of a risk if someone has a very, very low risk of being audited, maybe they have a, you know, a single family or two, very small, it may be beneficial to use something like that. I'm not saying you should, because again, uh, I don't personally use it. We don't do those type of things and it doesn't stand up an audit, but, you know, some people have a little more risk tolerance when it comes to that just at least be able to take some bigger deductions. This is a great topic and uh, happy to share. And you can always reach out to me. If you need a feasibility analysis, you go to weiss.com. You can find me on all the socials also, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. And that's that's all I got that was for awesome. the slides. <laughs> that was awesome, Yuna. Um, I, I liked how you went through everything in detail, um, you know, start to finish. But the most important thing that I want to highlight in what you said was about timing, right? When you are creating these losses, you really need to make sure you're you're doing it at the right time in the right tax year, because um, depending on your situation and the way you've structured things, those losses can be passive or they can be active. And then you want to make yes. sure you have that income that you're offsetting with it um, in that given year. So yeah, so it's, so timing is really important. I like how you talked about uh, thinking about it when you're acquiring a property or when you're rehabbing a property. And then, um, you know, sometimes you may have held the property for a while, but you, it may still be beneficial to go ahead and do the bonus depreciation. Now, there are some circumstances, right? You want to know where you could even do it before you sell the property. There may be a benefit to doing it. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, again, it really has a lot to do with timing. Essentially, when you sell a property, there's something called depreciation recapture tax. Okay. And this is something that you really need to uh, realize that's there. When you're taking these deductions, they are considered passive deductions. Okay. When you sell a property, you have what's considered a capital gain, which is a passive gain, uh, having made any money on the property. And you also have what's called depreciation recapture tax, which essentially you have to pay a tax. On, or you're subject to a tax on the amount of depreciation that uh, you were taking. I'm, I'm getting to your question in kind of a roundabout yeah, way, yeah. <laughs> but you're subject to a tax on the amount of depreciation that you took. Now that those losses, usually if you're doing a, um, you know, planning or holding a property for a very short period of time, taking those benefits and getting those deductions this year and using them, it's great to offset income. And if you're selling the next year, you're just going to have to be subject to that tax. So you may not be able to, to benefit from all that. However, I should mention, if you do buy another property, you can have passive losses from one property to offset the recapture tax or the capital gain or, or anything like that, but income from another property because depreciation is all lumped together. Rental income is all lumped together. Um, and so those passive losses can offset the passive gain. Uh, you mentioned before you're selling a property, if you never did this, well, guess what? If you're selling a property, you may be expecting like a, a big, you know, capital gain. Well, let, let's just take two scenarios. Let's say you have property A, right? That you're selling. Now you can always do a 1031 exchange, which allows you to defer your capital gains tax, allows you to defer the depreciation recapture tax and exchange that for another property. Okay. That's great. You can defer everything. But what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you don't 
uh, you're not able to do a 1031 exchange. There are limitations. It's not always most beneficial and feasible, the timing. You send a solid property and you're subject. You have this huge you know, capital gains tax bill or a depreciation recapture tax bill. What happens at that point? Well, you can actually buy another property in the same year and get these huge passive losses from consegregation. And even if you're not a real estate professional, you can use those losses against your uh, those gains. And so that's something that not a lot of people know about. And definitely something can be done. The other scenario is, um, well, let's say you... You know, you you just you're not planning a well. Maybe you do buy another property, but if you buy a property, and well, let's say you're about to sell a property that you never did a consegregation on, you can actually do the consegregation, get these huge tax deductions this year, and get those losses. And then even when you sell, if you have any, you know, to get the income this year, and when you sell, you may be able to offset those taxes uh, from the losses that were generated in consegregation. So again, it's. There are different strategies, different strokes for different folks. It's definitely something you want to discuss with your accountant. Make sure they're aware of the benefits um, and because not a lot of accountants are. Yeah. And I really like what you said about, uh, about the 1031 exchange. When the 1031 exchange is a great way to defer you know, your gains as well as depreciation recapture. But what you highlighted, and this is really important because we have members uh, you know, who go through this all the time. They'll be like, I'm trying to get this 1031 done and I don't think it's going to happen within the time frame." And they're, they're really um, beginning to worry. But like you said, you could still uh, you know, sell that property. And even if you're unable to do that 1031 exchange, especially right now with bonus depreciation, you could buy another property and those, the losses, the bonus depreciation, uh, and then the passive losses that you create could offset um, you know, what you have to pay in terms of gains and depreciation recapture. That's a great point. Exactly. Um, um, that was great. Thank you, Yona. I think we're at the end of our questions. This was very educational. Uh, you are truly the cost segregation king. Uh, well, thank you, Yona. Thank you so much. 